0: <clears throat> Welcome to Bible class this morning and to Pickerington Church of Christ. I see a lot of visitors out in the uh, audience today. We're glad you're here. Uh, we likely know why you're here, and uh, that is because we have a special guest with us this weekend. Dr. Noby Stone and, and his wife Margaret uh, have come to be with us and, uh, this weekend, and they were at Ohio State University Friday and Saturday speaking to students on campus there. And uh, we're in for a special treat today, I believe. Uh, Dr. Stone, we have um, introduced uh, his credentials to you uh, through literature and from the, from the pulpit to let you know a little bit about uh, the caliber of speaker that we have here today. But during this Bible class hour, I think you're going to see um, someone who is uh, a fellow believer in Christ, someone who's convicted, someone who's a worker, in the kingdom. Uh, Dr. Stone is uh, a father of three. He and Margaret have uh, two girls and a boy and they have six grandchildren, two boys and four girls. And he's a deacon at the Mayfair Church of Christ in Huntsville, Alabama. He's been teaching the Bible classes there for uh, nearly 40 years, he said. And so we have a brother in Christ with us this morning. I thought it'd be more appropriate at this time to introduce him more personally as he speaks to us about such personal matters as the need for faith and the consequences of unbelief during the Bible class hour. So, won't you welcome Dr. Stone for this hour?
1: Well, Matt, I want to thank you and the other elders for inviting me to come this morning. It's an honor to be here. Um, We're going to cover a lot of different topics next couple of hours, three hours. Um, So I'm going to move fairly fast, and I understand there are bells that that will ring before I actually get a hook, but um, how many of you were at the lectures at Ohio State? Good, so it won't be a repeat for some of you. I, I couldn't help but notice that you play football up here in Ohio. (laughs) Football is a way of life down home in Alabama. Uh, We have two large universities, not compared to Ohio State, but larger, Auburn University, where all of my money went, (laughs) and the University of Alabama. And they don't get along very well, but the university they really like to hate is the University of Tennessee. And Huntsville's about 15 miles from Tennessee. So there's a story that two little boys were playing catch with baseball in a vacant lot downtown Huntsville. When suddenly a very large rabid dog ran onto the lot and began to viciously attack one of the little boys. His buddy picked up their baseball bat and ran over and clobbered the dog in the head and <laughs> killed it instantly. About that time a man who had been watching the little boys from across the street ran up and he said, son, that, that was amazing. He said, you didn't run away. You risked your life to save your friend. He says, I'm a reporter for the Huntsville Times and I think people would like to know about your brave act. It would be all right if I write it up and put it in the paper. And the little boy said, sure, mister. The reporter pulls out his pad and he begins to write, young crimson tide fan, kills monstrous beast, saves friend from... Horrendous death. And he heals a tug at his coat and the little boy says, But sir, I'm not an Alabama fan. Okay, so he rips off and starts again. Young war eagle. Kills rabid dog. Saves friend from certain death. And another tug at his coat. And he says, Mr., I'm not an Auburn fan either. And the reporter looks at the little boy and he says, Well, son, here we are in North Alabama. I thought sure you would be an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan. What in the world are you? He says, Mr., I'm a Tennessee Vol fan. He says, I see, rips it off and starts again. Young hoodlum kills family pet. <laughs> it's kind of an old joke, but it's the best example I have ever heard of spin. You know that word spin? Wrapping a bow faced lie and a little truth so it goes down a little easier? All with the intent to deceive. We have deception in America today. We have spin. But it may surprise you to realize that this is not an American invention. I want you to come with me to chapter 3 of Genesis, briefly. Adam and Eve are still in the garden, and Satan has confronted Eve. And he says, Did God really say? And then he says, You will not surely die, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so Eve didn't like being Eve particularly. She wanted to be like God, so she ate from the fruit. And Adam, of course, doing what all good husbands do, obeying his wife, he also ate from the fruit. Well, it says, I don't know if you can read that or not. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they hid from the Lord God. You see, it wasn't a total lie, was it? They did become like God in one narrow sense, knowing good from evil. Not exactly what Eve had in mind. Spin. We could talk all day about what this lie has done to mankind, the incredible sorrow and pain and suffering down through the ages, but I want to go forward now <clears throat> to the first century. A man, Jesus, from the town of Nazareth is, being, is on trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Kind of a, a two-bit politician with not a whole lot to recommend him, but nevertheless he's trying, he's judging this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has been accused of claiming to be a king, and Pilate's just asking him, is it true that you claim to be a king? That would be an affront to the Caesar. And Jesus affirmed, and then he says, adds, And for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world. And you might think that he's going to say, to seek and save the lost, to heal the sick, to feed the poor. And although he did all these things, or or to die for our sins, But look at what he says, to testify to the truth. Isn't that interesting? And think about that. Adam and Eve were born in a perfect, idyllic situation. Everything they needed, and they had a perfect relation with their Creator God. And yet, because they believed the lie, they fell from this favored position. If we still believe the lie, and Jesus came and just sacrificed Himself for our sins, but we continue to believe the lie, the sacrifice would be of no effect. And so Jesus came to testify to the truth, as opposed to the lie of Satan. Instead of believing the truth, we might come to Jesus and His sacrifice will save us from our sins. Pilate, this little two-bit politician, turns and it's incredible. He's come face to face with the Almighty Creator and he turns and walks away and sneers, what is truth? What is truth? Well, the battle for truth has raged down through the centuries, and it is uh, okay still going on today. Basically, everywhere we look today, there's spin. On TV, you have the History Channel. There was a few years ago a special program by Peter Jennings, the news commentator. He's not living any longer, but Peter Jennings took his film crew to Israel and they put on this special program, Peter Jennings, Searching for Jesus. Peter Jennings didn't find Jesus. There are a lot of programs that are, intentional or not, will cause you to question your faith. And I'm in your way, on it. Uh, if you look at printed material, time, life, books, heavy in evolution, National Geographic, even in the daily news there is the presumption of materialism, and by materialism I mean it's a world view, a philosophical position that the only thing that's real is this material universe and its laws. Reality is limited to the physical, and you'll see that everywhere you look. The books, The Da Vinci Code, you're probably all familiar with. It's a perversion of history, and Dan Brown has an agenda. Is to derail your faith. And even in public schools, we have problems with our textbooks. And so in this environment, a lot of questions arise, particularly with young people. What is truth? Pilate's question. Is there any purpose to life? Who is Jesus? Is the Bible true? Does God really exist? How do we know? You know, um, when I was a kid, I remember... At the supper table one, one night, I asked my mother, Mom, how do we know the Bible's true? And there was a long silence. And then she turned and she said, Of course it's true, it's the Bible. Now eat your spinach. <laughs> Questions like these need to be heard. What does First Peter say? Always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for your hope. I'm not knocking my mom that she was a victim of her generation. People just believed then. But that wasn't an answer. I remember being on a plane going to the West Coast once on business, and there was a a young man sitting between me and an elderly woman, elderly about my age now. And I woke up, and they had been talking, and he had been a Hindu, and he was searching, and she had introduced him to, to Christianity. And at one point he said, how can I believe all that? And she says, you just have to have faith. And he says, I can't believe just because I want to. And he was exactly right. Because I didn't have answers, I became an agnostic for about 15 years. We need to have answers. I want to look at our, our society today and how this lie and spin has affected it. And to get a baseline for that, I want to go back for just a couple of minutes and look at some things from the early days of our republic. First of all, does this have to? point? Okay. Our founding fathers chose for our form of republic, uh, of, of government, a republic, not a democracy. Now, that may surprise you. In fact, It was not and was never intended to be a democracy. They didn't like the idea of a democracy. Some of them even called a democracy the devil's own form of government. Now why would they say that? I remember George Bush wanted to plant democracies all around the world, and democracy today has become one of those those words like motherhood and apple pie. So what's the difference? Well, a republic has a core of law which supersedes the will of the people. It recognizes a higher authority than man. In our case, our core of law is our Judeo-Christian heritage, the law that we see from God, his, His definition of morality. A democracy, on the other hand, has no central core. A pure democracy is, is at the whelm of the people. Anything we decide to do in a pure democracy can become law. In a pure democracy, we could vote tomorrow that murder is legal and it would become legal. You might keep that in mind as we go on. So you see, a democracy kind of goes hand in glove with secular humanism. It places man at the pentacle. A republic recognizes a higher authority. It goes hand in glove with Christianity. And it's the form that our founding fathers decided on. There's a lot of talk today about our founding fathers and how apparently you would think none of them were Christian, maybe one or two, But they wrote letters back then, they didn't have cell phones, and so they wrote letters. Samuel Adams wrote a lot of letters to his wife Abigail, and you can still buy the book, Letters to Abigail. And in one of his letters he described the first meeting of the Continental Congress. Now I want you to think about this, these men had been British subjects before they signed the Declaration of Independence. They lived under British law. The Magna Carta, they had a British governor that enforced that law. They lived in British colonies. When they signed that paper, the Declaration of Independence, they were no longer British subjects. They were criminals with a price on their head. They were no longer to living in British colonies with a British governor. And so with a price on their head, they were meeting in Boston. And at the same time, the British Navy... The British Empire was the greatest empire ever known at that time. They had a huge navy. They had a a great army, well-trained, well-equipped, battle-tested. And they were sailing into Boston Harbor with an attitude as these men met. What were they to do? Samuel Adams says, The first meeting of the Continental Congress opened with a prayer, a prayer that lasted three hours. Now I'm not going to tell you that all these men were Christians in the sense that we would call a Christian, but when push came to shove, they bent the knee and asked the Almighty for guidance and protection. I think that tells us something about them as a group. As I said, they no longer lived in British colonies, they no longer had the Magna Carta, so they went home and they wrote constitutions for their respective states. And it's instructive, I think, to look at what some of these early constitutions included. This is the first constitution for the state of Massachusetts, not exactly a Bible-based state today. It says, "...any person chosen shall before he proceed to execute the duties of his place or office... Make and subscribe the following declaration. I do declare that I believe in the Christian religion and have firm persuasion in its truth. And this one was authored by Samuel Adams. The original constitution of the state of Delaware. Everyone who shall be chosen as a member of either house or appointed to office or trust before taking his seat shall take the following oath to wit. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ His only Son and in the Holy Ghost one God blessed forevermore and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be given by divine inspiration. You could not hold office. By the way, we don't have time to look at a couple of them but all 13 original states had provisions like this, similar to this in the original constitutions. You could not hold office in the early republic if you were not a declared Christian. You didn't have to be a Christian to live here, but to hold office because our government was a government based on Christian moralities and the law of God. Let's look at some of the things they did. Here they are in a war for survival. Broke, bankrupt, and one of the first things they did was to allocate funds to go buy Bibles. You see, their their primary trading partner before the Declaration of Independence was Great Britain. That was cut off. And a lot of things came into short supply, and one of them was Bibles. Why did they want to buy Bibles? so that they could be used in the public schools. So in the midst of the war, with hardly any funds, they sent men to the Netherlands to a printer they found there who would print English Bibles and bought Bibles to be used in the public education system. Look at the amendment. First Amendment is the offending amendment today. They say it says... Separation of church and state. What it actually says is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. My emphasis. Because you don't hear that part of it anymore. What were they saying? Why were they fighting this war? Taxes was one reason, lack of representation, another but it was also because of religion. They did not want to have to worship in the Church of England, which you had to do if you were in England. And they felt that everyone should be free to worship as they wished. And so this is a statement of prohibition of establishing a state church that would be imposed on all citizens. Nothing to do with separation of state, of, of government and religion. And they put in the, the extra statement there, are prohibiting the free speech thereof. The same men that wrote this, this amendment, at the same time, wrote provisions for statehood. There were territories out west that wanted to become states. And so they wrote conditions for statehood. And it's instructive to look at what some of these conditions are. <clears throat> One of them, given in the Northwest Ordinance, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to the good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. What kind of education? Number one is religion. Practically what that meant is that a territory could not apply for statehood until they had in place a Christian-based public education System. It makes you wonder if our Supreme Court has misinterpreted the intent of our Founding Fathers when they wrote the amendment. I want to introduce you to uh, Noah Webster. He wrote a textbook, History of the United States. This book went through 200 reprints. It was used in the public school system until the late 1800s, about the turn of the century. In discussing civic responsibilities, look what he says. In voting for public offices, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of our government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. Can you imagine that being in public school today? What's his logic for this? Well, what's our law based on? A public official is sworn to uphold the laws of our country. And the laws of our country, at least at that time, were based on Christian morality. And it makes sense that if you're going to uphold Christian laws, the law of God, you need to be a believer in God. So, that's where we come from. Why the present skepticism? Well, let me introduce you to another man, Robert Ingersoll. He was an atheist. He went around speaking around the the late 1800s with the intent of removing all traces of religion, basically from public life, but especially government and schools. And he proposed to do this by two propositions. The first was called compartmentalism no religious activity has any place in government and should be kept separate from all public education and government arenas. Basically, out of sight, out of public. In other words, if you Christians want to meet and practice your superstitions, that's great, as long as you do it within the four walls of a church building. Ironically, he received support in this effort from some of our most noted church leaders thought, I suppose, that Christians should be uh, busy converting people to Christianity and spreading the gospel and not working in the government. I think it's myopic. We all, most of us, have secular jobs. And the secular job might just as well be in the government. When you create a vacuum, there are always people that are all more than willing to fill that vacuum. And that's what's happened in our country, I'm afraid. The second proposition was the sanctity of private life. Private life is not to be exposed or considered in selecting public officials, and religious views should be kept totally out of sight. How does that compare with the intent of our founding fathers and what we just read that Noah Webster wrote? In fact, in addressing this, if we go on in his book, History of America of the United States, he he says, to illustrate this, he says, which is better to determine a person's fitness to serve their private life or their public life an example he used benedict arnold and he says what is benedict arnold publicly oh well he's uh, one of the rising stars in george washington's continental army is one of his one of his promising officers what is benedict arnold privately Well, he was skimming off funds and supplies intended to go to the starving troops at Valley Forge and pocketing the money. And he was making plans to turn over one of our fords to the British. He was a traitor. Which is better determination of his fitness to serve in office, private or public? And yet today, we, uh, we will dredge up a parking ticket that somebody got 20 years ago, or something they said when they were 10 years old. But we really don't look at character, do we? We don't look at their fitness to serve in the way that Noah Webster advocated. As a result, today, it seems to me that we have the convergence of three godless philosophies that we've allowed to shape our society. And the first is evolution. Some people would call this a science, but I call it a philosophy because it basically has become a religion. It's, it's not allowed to, to criticize evolution, and it's not allowed to be competed with by other other explanations. Evolution says we don't need God to explain how we got here. We don't need God. The second is atheism. It says, in fact, there is no God. They can't prove that, but they claim it very loudly. And the third is secular humanism. And it says, well, if we don't need God to to get here, and in fact there is no God, then mankind is the highest of the evolved animals. And there is nothing above us, no one, nothing that we answer to. Man is de facto his own God. Let's look at the logical consequences of these three philosophies. And the big spin here, the deception, is that these people will tell you that this philosophy will make your life more meaningful. It's good for our society, for the advancement of humankind. Well, let's look at the logical consequences. If man was not created but is the result of a complex accident, then life has no inherent purpose. Isn't that obvious? If you're not here for a reason, then you have no purpose. Where there is no God, there are no absolutes. No absolute right or wrong. Acceptability simply becomes what the, excuse me, The majority of the people decide, just like in a pure democracy. It's what we vote on. There's no referee up above keeping score. We do our own thing. And morality really has no real meaning. And thirdly, if a man is his own God, then by definition the highest purpose in life is man's own selfish desire. Is that not obvious? We're reaping the benefits of this philosophy. Without God, there are no fundamental purpose or value or hope, and there is no absolute limits on human behavior. Let's look at what's happening today among us. And before we do this, I want to go back to Noah Webster. Man was a prophet. Look what he says. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Oh, he gets much more specific though. Laws will be made for selfish and local purposes, not for the common good. You ever heard of pork? Corrupt and incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. Glad we don't have to worry about that today. The public revenues will be squandered. I think about that every time I pay my taxes. The rights of the citizens will be violated and disregarded. And every single one of these things is, a, is with us today. Let's look at a couple of lawsuits, cases. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled um, there was a, 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 a case in New London uh, i not sure what state, maybe Connecticut, a man lived on the coast. And the municipality wanted to take his, his home that he had lived in all of his life, 40, 50 years, and sell it to a, to a private developer who was going to inst- take his home away and put there, I can't remember, it was a, a shopping center or a big apartment complex? And it was going to bring more tax money into the municipality. It went to the Supreme Court and you're and my Supreme Court sided with the municipality. And because of this, you really don't own your home any longer. If the community you live in decides to condemn your property and they show that by condemning it they can use it in another way that will raise more revenue, the Supreme Court says that's okay. I couldn't believe it. doesn't sound like America. doesn't sound like government of the people, for the people, by the people. <clears throat> in this particular case, a man was accused of brutally beating to death a 71-year-old woman because he wanted her Social Security check. He was tried in a court of law and convicted. There was no, no question about his guilt. But the prosecuting attorney had had the audacity to mention one verse of Scripture in the proceedings. And because of that, the conviction was thrown out. And you have to ask yourself, is our judicial system concerned about justice or about political correctness? And then we come to the, the big elephant in the room Roe v. Wade, 1973. Because of this decision by the, our Supreme Court, infants, unborn infants, have no rights in the United States. Every year, Americans legally abort. About one million babies. In 1985, or 1980s, there was a a survey, a study, and they determined that about half of all abortions go unreported. So we're talking about somewhere between one and two million little, innocent, helpless, viable babies being put to death in our country. Every year. And we sneer at the Germans and Adolf Hitler, who only killed 8 million Jews, mostly adults. And I ask, what is history going to say about our country? A million since 1973. We're talking about on the order of 80 million little babies. And people say, well, you've got to worry about the health of the mother, and what about rape and incest? Well, what about it? Look at the numbers. If I can get this thing to work, there we go. Only 2.1% of all abortions have anything to do with maternal health issues. 2.1%. Less than 1% have anything to do with rape or incest. That leaves an excess of 93% of all abortions are for... Some form of convenience. You can call it what you want. You can uh, rationalize it. But it's not a matter of the mother's health and not a matter of rape or incest. Maybe a family has three kids and can't afford another. Maybe a girl is going to college and doesn't have time. She's preparing for life. Maybe they don't want to have the embarrassment. There are a lot of excuses. But there are no limits on human behavior when you take God out of society. I've got five minutes. Okay. Let's look at the effect of godliness on individuals. And I think it's significant. In the United States today, there was a survey of young people 18 to 24 years old And these were not just any young people. They were young people that had gone to church regularly until they left home. These are our kids. By the time they are 24, that's a misprint, between 60 and 70 percent had lost their faith in God and turned their back on all religious activity. 60 and 70 percent. Only about 30 percent of those ever come back and less than that come back in any way that in a way that Christianity has anything to do with the way they live their lives. This is unacceptable in my mind. And we're losing our young people physically as well. What do you do when life goes sour and you don't believe there's a God? When you believe that you're here as a result of a complex accident, you're here accidentally. There's really no purpose to life and it makes no difference whether I accomplish anything or not. You know, when, when we're dead, we're dead, we're gone. If, if humanity becomes extinct, the universe won't, won't mourn our passing. It's strictly an accident. And so what do you do? Well, one of the highest causes of death among this same age group, 18 to 24, is suicide. And I ask you, Living in the greatest country ever known to man, a country of almost unlimited opportunity. Why in the world would a young person in the prime of life decide to terminate that life if they really believed that tomorrow the sun would come up, the birds would sing, and things would get better? This is a screaming admission of a lack of hope. Let me go on real quick. Where are we headed? I'm going to run through this because this is so vulgar. I don't want to. There's young people here. I don't want to expose them. But Peter Singer is a tenured professor at Princeton University. He is uh, well thought of. The New York Times, largest newspaper in our land, says there's no other living philosopher has this kind of influence. The New Yorker magazine, the most influential philosopher alive, the New England Journal of Medicine, you may have heard of, Peter Singer has had more success in affecting changes in acceptable behavior than any other philosopher since Bertrand Russell. Well, what does Peter Singer say? This was in an interview with him, uh, by World Magazine. And he was asked a number of questions concerning geality, no problem. Concerning necrophilia, no problem. Look at this one, concerning parents conceiving and giving birth to a child specifically to kill it so they can put his organs into their older ailing children. Look at this answer. It's difficult to warm to parents who can take such a detached view, but they're really not doing something wrong in itself. And as I read this article, I began to wonder, is there anything under the sun that Peter Singer would think was immoral? He was asked the final question, is there anything wrong with the society in which children are bred for spare parts on a massive scale? No. You know, three years ago when I first started saying this, it was kind of a, you know, you didn't think about it. Planned Parenthood is almost there today. They're not breeding them, but they're using parts and selling parts. So Peter Singer, the most influential philosopher alive, and I'm pointing this out, folks, because if we don't get our head out of the sand and stand up and start being counted, we're going to lose our young people, we're going to lose our country, and we're going to lose our right to assemble and worship. In the absence of God, there are no absolute limits on human behavior. Is there hope? Just another point or two. In AD 33, Acts tells us that there were 120 disciples of Christ in the upper room. <clears throat> outside of that room was a city of, of Jerusalem, at least a half a million people, probably swollen to a million or so for the, for the uh, Pentecost. And outside of that was a Roman world of perhaps 60 to 80 million, mostly pagans. And they were told to go and spread the gospel what a daunting task. And yet, despite persecution, Christianity spread throughout Judea, throughout Palestine, and throughout the empire. Uh, Christians uh, were a sizable minority in 64 in Rome, throughout the empire by 112 in such numbers they warranted a letter to the emperor. How did this happen? I believe it happened because of individuals. Who were ready to answer the question, the reason for their faith, and they were unafraid of death. They were prepared to die, and die they did. I have been, um, if I can have a couple more minutes, I've I've been to the Roman Coliseum a number of times, and you get an eerie feeling when you stand there. It's a magnificent structure. There's no steel in it, all arches. It seated estimates between 50 and 80,000 people. I looked down at a tunnel coming in from the outside where they brought in animals and gladiators and probably Christians. And it had been used so much, there were ruts in the rocks. It was the epicenter of the Roman world. It was the, the icon of Roman might that held the world in an iron grip for over a thousand years. But to Christians, it surely must have been the symbol of the absolute hopelessness of mankind. And we don't have to take the word of of historians and movies. We can look at their own handiwork and see what they did. And so as I stood there, I wondered, what happened to Nero, this tyrant that demanded to be worshipped as God, who put Christians to death simply because they believed in the grace of their God? Well, he died a coward's death. What about the mighty Roman Empire? It lies in ruins. And what I got out of this is this that little group of 120 and 33. By 323, the Roman Emperor Constantine was converted. And Christianity became the dominant religion in the whole Roman world. Don't ever doubt God. He will accomplish His purpose in His own time, in His own way, with us or without us. The decision is ours, which side we're going to be on. Thank you.